Krom. My friends to Cromtober 2021. <laughs> I am Undead Josh. <laughs> and to my left is Spooky Luke. Hello. <laughs> and across from me is Frank and John. <laughs> Good evening, everybody. Are you Frank and John or Frank and John's monster? John and Stein? Maybe. John and Stein. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Frankenstein's Johnster. Luke Austin often calls me Johnster. Snap. Yeah. I wish that I had thought of it. <laughs> I do call you the Johnster. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Welcome, everybody, to our Cromtober spooktacular extravaganza for this year. And we're each so excited to be uh, gathering together for the first time to record uh, a podcast in person in, what, over a year? Yeah. Maybe the last Cromtober. Yeah, maybe the last Cromtober. We yeah, did socially so. distance it by fire. Yeah. In the hopes the flames would kill the jerks. When it was hot? Wasn't it hot? Was it hot last year? It was. Year? Blistering it was hot. a little bit hot. We were a little bit earlier than we were this year. It's true. So. But now the October colors have uh, crept their way upon the tree leaves. A sign of the imminent fall of these leaves. The death of everything. The death of everything. Did you guys drive through some dope-ass fog to get here? I did, yeah. yeah. Wispy fog. Yeah. yeah. And I did see a person outside their car, uh-huh. uh, and I did not stop to see if they needed help, because I was afraid they might have been a vampire. Possible. They could have made the fog. They could have made the fog. Don't they turn into mist? They can, according to folklore. It's true. Control the weather. Now, according to that seminar we attended a few years ago, werewolves are a much bigger problem in Kentucky than vampires. That's true. Yeah, there's an infestation. At this point, um, the werewolf population in Kentucky far exceeds the vampire population. <laughs> that's that's according to some models. Right. Yeah. I, w- I, would, <laughs> I would love to see the bottom. I would, I, would, I would say at this point we have to be rampant with werewolves. Yeah. The cryptid biodiversity index is crashing just because werewolves are taking up all the niches. That's yep. true. Yeah. Yeah. Does that mean they're not they're not native to Kentucky? I mean, even if they're think? native, sometimes you can native species can be unleashed, right, and turned mm-hmm. into like internal invasives. That's true. Right? Yeah. If we took away their key predator, uh, 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 I don't I don't know why that's <laughs> worthy of Drac laugh. <laughs> Drac laugh. <laughs> Cue the Drac laugh. <laughs> but we are gathered in uh, Spooky Luke's living room to have some bourbons and some beers and talk about some creepy stories and folklore tonight. And uh, let's go around the horn and talk about what we're having to to drink. John, at the moment, I have nothing. Is that mm. you know, I'll is, have to remedy that before is we it get into because it. you never drink. It's <laughs> bourbon. <laughs> Uh, I often, I mean, I think there's audio recordings that would bear that. That's, that's true. Lie. That's that's on previous nights. Per, this before is a different I was night. bitten by a vampire. Before you were bitten. Wait. 
<laughs> so John, John's not. Uh, he's not he's not jumped into I'm sorry. the party. It's I okay. apologize. You can you can sh- share something alcoholic. Yeah. Uh, I have high lives in a cooler. No, I meant what, like what you're drinking. Uh, I have a high life in, in your belly too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And Luke, I have Kirkland Signature Citra Hop Session IPA. So this is like the uh, the Costco uh, Founders All Day IPA. That's basically what it is. Yeah, and it rocks and rolls all night, sweet Susie. It's delicious. I'm uh, really happy to hear that that's beer because I thought that you went and got three lime seltzer waters. No. And I, I was like, not. why is he going it's so hard a, in the paint on seltzer? A, it's a hard green can no, I understand. that is like super, yeah. super delicious. If you, awesome. if you like the, the easy drinking IPAs, if you like a hoppy beer, but you want to drink a bunch of them, go for uh, the, the, the Kirkland Signatures. That's what I got going. Anyway, uh, that's what I'm drinking. And then also we've got to handle the Wild Turkey 101 if we need to get into it. <laughs> a whole lot of, A whole lot of that. Yep. So you can see there's a whole lot of imbibing going on. Now let us talk about spooky one thing. to my left okay so my one thing uh my buddy from growing up and and our buddy of the show uh levi combs has a uh an rpg company called planet x games and levi's been cool enough to kind of keep us in the loop with a variety of his activities over the past few years we've had him on the show a few times i think maybe one time around about a year ago. I can't remember exactly. It mm-hmm. may have been around October time. But right now, through the month of October, he should have a Kickstarter running for King Tut's Rootin' Tootin' Weird West uh, Extrava Bonanza. That's the name <laughs> of, of the, the, the latest like uh, thing that Planet X Games is doing. And I say thing because it's kind of hard to define. It's one of those, it's one of those like OSR zines that has a mix of just big ideas for a game at the, the, the tabletop RPG table, whether it's like monsters or magic items or rules, that kind of stuff. But but just generally, I felt like it was, I, I needed to mention Levi here. So he, uh, he sent us, Josh, I guess what, hard copies of the... Of the Escape from Skullcano Island, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is pretty, which is pretty rocking with some monsters. So it seems seasonally appropriate. That's what initially got me thinking about this, but also the fact that Levi was running the the Rootin' Tootin' adventure through the month of October on on <laughs> on Kickstarter seemed to align too. I mean, mm-hmm. anyway, that's my one thing. Uh, Levi and Planet X. There's there's good stuff there. Levi's Gonzo sort of. Uh grindhouse aesthetic for his games it really strikes a chord with me. Yeah. I love it. It's, it's, it's really good. So Levi, they've been picked up. I don't know if picked up's the right word. They're now being published through Exalted Funeral, which is 
fairly big within the the indie RPG scene, mm. so it's easier for people to get hard copies of their materials all, aco- all across the, uh, the states and sort of intercontinental. So that's a cool thing. That's the way that he's handling shipping now with his Kickstarters. Uh, but yeah, dude's got lots of love for the, for the industry and for the, the weird fiction scene. So it seemed appropriate to mention a spooky thing here. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. It is awesome. All I'm right. also very thankful that he got you to say rootin' tootin'. Rootin' tootin'. And it's a, it's a mummy. I'm going to hand it over to you. Me? Johnster. <laughs> I'm going to go with a book that I used actually for part of research for our show tonight. Uh, it's called The Enchanted World Series from Time Life. I think I've talked about Time Life books before. They seem to put out some interesting publications in the 80s, wouldn't you say? Yeah, 80s and 90s yeah, and they, today. They have- <laughs> Just like the music on the radio stations, right? <laughs> If you got boomer, I actually I really hate fans. the eighties, nineties, and today thing it's because dumb, it dude. skips twenty or the two thousands and the twenty. Uh-huh. Like, I mean, twenty years of it's, yeah. It's like we moved straight from <laughs> the nineties to right. like Dum Dumville. Yeah. <laughs> aside from that, uh, these books are pretty cool. This Enchanted World series—they have lots of awesome paintings in them. It seems that they're kind of famous for that, just in what I've read on the Wikipedia and on people's like blog posts about them. Mm-hmm. I read through the volume that's called Night Creatures. It has a very creepy vampire on the front. Creepy in shadow. vampire. Uh, Luke is on the hunt for some himself. He thought the pictures were pretty cool, and you found a volume of witches. Uh, 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 don't talk about it on the eight books. Those are my hunts. Oh, those, I'm sorry. Are, I'm, I'm the one that's hunting it them. It was on Amazon, also, the one I'm talking about. That's right. That's right. Amazon <laughs> eight books. I'm, yeah. I'm hunting them time-life books on the eight books. And don't mention the witch right now, please. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> don't well, mention the sorry. witches and warlocks. Okay, we'll book keep it on the deal. Buddy. For five dollars. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but they're cool because they're like awesome old school coffee yeah. table books, right? That's what I'm all about. It's got like a nice sort of velour cover, velour. interesting paintings on the inside. Uh, uh. And yeah, it's like a quick overview. Like here's a really cool ink woodcut of a Japanese monster. It's like a spider. spider. Other volumes include fairies and elves. We've got ghosts, legends of valor. Uh, so it's not presented necessarily as like, these are all real. Like you get with a, the mysteries of the unexplained or something, but it's sort of a series of collections of folklore. Yeah, there's like there's a there's a there's a book on you mentioned elves, but there's one on dwarves yes, too. Yeah, and then there's another one giants Cri- and ogres. Christmas. Yeah, yeah. I got well, I've got four of these. So I've got the book of Christmas. I've got night terrors. I have what's the other one that I've got that's creepy? Teddy bears. Uh, Tales of terror. Oh, and I can't remember what the last one is. Oh, it's like gods and goddesses or something. Because I think there's a picture of. of Vanaheim or something on the front of it, but yeah, I just I'm into it and I used it for research tonight. So that's my one thing. That's great. A little bit of a spooky. They're perfect, book. man. Yeah. Maybe we can include some pictures. That would be great. Yeah. As long as I can edit them. Yeah. I like to put filters on. Them. Yes, of course. <laughs> Creepy. <laughs> Do it for the gram. Right. Round us out there. Uh, Bring it around, Josh. Okay. My creepy one thing. Uh. 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 Is the Muppets Haunted Mansion? Oh, yes. on Disney Plus, only six ninety nine a month. Didn't know that was out already. 
Um, it's so I've been obsessed with the previews. Yeah, yeah, and watching every preview and reading everything about That's it. Awesome. Is this yeah. a new thing? It's a new thing. Yeah, oh. it's it's uh, upcoming. I think I thought that it was out, but my you we're know, using the phone. You would know way better than I would. Um, and so I am obsessed with this idea that Gonzo is wandering through the haunted mansion, encountering spirits in the guise of Kermit the Frog and others. It is out. Seems October like 8th, it came out. Yeah. Mm. Seems like a lot of fun. Not to date our show. Yeah. That's fine. The other thing that I've been watching, uh, dipping back into Castlevania, the, the Netflix anime. There are four seasons of it now, so I haven't watched it since season one. Yeah. It's been three years, maybe? Two, two years? They crank those out pretty quickly. And I just really love the whole Castlevania aesthetic. Oh, I don't know if you guys knew that. that. I did know that. I knew that about you. Yeah. I like to whip Draculas. Ah, ah, ah. Anyway, that's enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's three creepy things that we put together in one casket filled with its native earth. And we call... Is that a Castlevania sound? One thing. I think that was him whipping a vampire. Joshua, Joshua Bel- Belmont. Joshua yeah. Belmont. BDSM vampire closure. <laughs> I whip it. Uh, 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 when what? a vampire comes along. You must whip you it. You must whip it. <laughs> My safe word is pineapples. <laughs> Ridiculous. All right. That's what we're known for, right? The, so the we're going to talk about vampires. I don't know if we actually outright announced that, did we? I feel like, <laughs> the, I feel like the accent should have clued people in. We've been around the bush a little bit. Pretty hard in the paint with the vampire stuff. <laughs> uh, so that's kind of our topic this year, right? Mm-hmm. We're doing a big, a big grand extravaganza here with a singular episode, but we're going to talk about three stories. Is that the plan? That's the plan. That's, the plan. that's what we're doing. Damn extravaganza. This is like an old school Crumbtober. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're stripping it down. We're yeah. bringing it down. Get down to the essential elements. It's basically acoustic, if we're getting real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Just me and you guys in a in a room together, God sweating and drinking like Basil of Vampires. <laughs> the goddamn Basil of Vampires. Surrounded by the fields. Alright, so we're gonna talk about three stories. Yes. Including a rendezvous uh, in Avalon. That's right. That's a Clark Ashton Smith story. Yes. The Dracula's horror. guest. That's Bram Stoker. Yes. And the horror from the mound by Robert E. Howard. So we've got two of the three pulpsters. Yeah. Yep. And then one of the OGs. This is the thing. Lovecraft didn't really write about vampires. Didn't like vampires. Really? Tell me more about that. Um, he was way more into the weird madness uh, of beyond space and time that could drive you mad. Vampires um, just a little too real. A little for him? too real for him, I, I think. Yeah, a little too, uh, a little too earthy, folklore. Yeah, yeah. more bougie. A little, he's a little bougie with his horror. Ah, I think. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Vampires famously part of the proletariat. <laughs> <laughs> well, the one one story here. Well, actually, I guess they're all counts and countesses, aren't That's they? True. Yeah. So never mind. <laughs> but uh, yeah, interestingly, Lovecraft sort of focused on more unreal aspects of horror within yeah. his stories, um, and less the less conventional stuff, and more conventional things like ghosts, vampires, werewolves. He kind of left out. 
Do you think that we got in all three of these stories the same kind of vampire, or did we have any more fantastical than the others? Or I, I think I think the difference is in the heroes. Interesting. And okay. I think the Venn diagram for the heroes in these stories would place the Clark Ashton Smith and the Bram Stoker heroes closer together, and the Howard hero a little bit further apart. Over in Texas. Over in yeah. Texas. Yeah, <laughs> I would agree. Yeah. So. Um, it's interesting to me that vampires go through these cycles of being super popular and then kind of everyone is tired of them. Mm-hmm. Kind of like zombies, right? right. Um, you, you get a zombie movie that's a hit and tons of zombie movies follow that. And I've read that these trends in horror movies kind of follow political trends. Yes. Right? And I think that I remember that vampires tend to be more popular in years when more conservative governments are in power and that mummy, uh, mummies, <laughs> that zombies are more popular when more liberal, uh, uh, administrations are in power. Really? I've, I've read such things from where the internet, <laughs> I think it was on cracked. It might've been cracked. I think it was. I remember that article. This is the graph that demonstrates what you're saying. That zombies are more popular in Republican years. Oh, it's politics. the other way around. Okay. Vampires are more popular in Democrat years. Okay. More. Po- uh, all right. Yeah. Some data. Yeah. Data. Show me. That's awesome. I got it backwards. But uh, the idea is that uh, vampires tend to stand in for big businesses and, and corporations and, and sort of sucking the life from the lower class and uh, zombies of course are unthinking hordes and masses. And it just, I wonder if there's not a co-variable that, you know, could be, could be present there, but I thought it was an interesting trend. It is an interesting trend. I like the title of one of the sections of this article, the right fears vampires because they're immortal sexual deviants. Uh, (laughs) nice I want to know what the left fears the left fears the left fears zombies because they're mindless consumers mmm yep I guess that makes sense yeah it's kind of kind of parallel to uh, John Carpenter's They Live right they're also here to stamp out Mm nonconformists and they can't think for themselves Uh, okay yeah vampires are Sexy immortal deviants. They're also foreign. Yes. And what's the last one? But I am working on citizens. Oh, they're parasites. Which Ah, sort of represents a socialism or communism type thing. Yep, 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 yep. Mm -hmm. I see it. I like it. Very good. Horror and politics tonight. Just what everybody wants, right? (laughs) In your your, uh, pulp podcast. (laughs) But... um, I think it's interesting that vampires tend to have this resurgence every so often. And I wanted to ask you guys what vampire stories or movies that you enjoy that are not part of this canon. What are, what are some things that, that got you interested in vampire stories? If you are interested in them at all, that sort of thing. So who wants to tackle that? I think you're more interested in vampires than I am. I I, I love vampires. Uh, So when you say the canon, Josh, do you mean like, uh, excluding the stories we're talking about tonight? I think so, and and excluding... I mean, Dracula, I think, probably is everyone's gateway vamp. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, to, for me, it is 
it's that and Lost Boys. Like, like the like those are the two representative vampire stories that I grew up with in the late nineties. I read Dracula. I don't know when I was an early teen, and it's crazy how readable the book is. Uh, even when you're like twelve or thirteen years old, I don't know how old I was, but it was around that point in time. And I, that's one of the books that I have this memory of. Uh, my mom telling me to turn the light off and then me staying up so much later and then being in like uh, college algebra, I guess maybe it was ninth grade, whatever that is, uh, reading Dracula. I mean, I still have that copy of the book and I, I still have these memories of reading it. So that's one end of the, the sort of vampire influence for me. And then the other side is like the Lost Boys movie. Like that was absolutely the coolest like vampire story when I was <laughs> when I was growing up. I just loved it and it was a it was a movie that we had on VHS. Somebody at least a couple people had it and I watched the hell out of it growing up. I didn't get as much into the vampires. My brother and I would stake claims on things sometimes, you know, and divert from each other, kind of repel each other and he was always more into the vampires than I was. I was more into the specters, haints, and boogers, as you put it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I didn't have a lot of gateway for it when I was a kid or growing up. But I do remember when I was in college, my my girlfriend then and now wife, uh, she was in a Spanish class. And they had like a cinema night every week for this one semester that she was in Spanish. And it was always a Spanish movie. And I got to go. I went with. I snuck in with her and saw Kronos. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was like, this is, yeah, this is awesome. Uh, it was one of those things where I was like, vampires are cool. Yeah, everybody was right. All <laughs> Yeah. Um, for me, like I've told you guys, and this is on the record in previous Chromtobers, I won't reiterate the whole story, but I read a graphic version of Dracula when I was way too young to have read it. And it, it really scared me. I think the art in it was, was really scary. And I kind of avoided vampires after that for a really long time. Um, it wasn't until I think I was in maybe ninth grade that the Blade movie came out. Um, and so Blade, like action vampires, I guess was kind of my, my jam around that point. And so Blade and around the same time, I think John Carpenter's vampires came out. Oh yeah, right, right, Um, right. And there were, there were a handful of other, like just kind of, uh, Actiony vampire movies, uh, Underworld, I think was around. Uh-huh. Like not much, not much later than that. Maybe a few years later, uh, but that was kind of my jam. Um, and I didn't read Dracula until after I had seen Blade again. I didn't reread it, right. and uh, it quickly became one of my favorite books. It's, it's something I revisit a lot. Um, and like Luke said, it's just so eminently readable. I just thought of one other one as you were talking about that. I remember reading I Am Legend in college. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that, cool. Yeah. Right. That was also a good vampire one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you know, Dracula, I think, is the, I guess, the, the spoke around which everything <laughs> rotates. But there's lots of other ways to access this this genre. The other movie that, that I remember enjoying was uh, Interview with a Vampire um, with, with Tom Cruise. Uh, as Lestat and Brad Pitt as uh, what was his character's name? Uh, okay, oh, Louis. Louis. Was he Louis? Yeah, Louis. And uh, Antonio Banderas is in that movie too. Kirsten Dunst. Kirsten Dunst. She's a youngster. Yeah. 
which is funny because she's like the same age as Josh and I. Like we're all like that's the cohort that we actually are. Uh, yeah, and so you were mentioning Blade that got me to thinking about. I mean, like like Lost Boys was it was before it was before my time, <laughs> you know. But it was it seemed like it was this evergreen movie that uh, that. that dudes in western arkansas watched in the late 90s and had been around for a while <laughs> like so so that was a that was a movie that we watched but you're right interview with a vampire and uh i mean the other thing that's inescapable being kids of the 90s is like the francis ford coppola dracula right like yeah i will forever be thinking about those sexy uh uh brides of dracula you know as a as a as a young lad of the nineties, like <laughs> that's some some titillation there. Like, there's a lot of of that that gets funneled into things, and that's a that's a pretty great movie as far as I'm concerned. I, I love it. Um, I taped that movie. It it showed on Fox. I don't know one Friday night, like at nine p.m., and I set my VCR to record it. And so the copy of it that I had um, growing up was taped from TV. And uh, you had to fast forward through the commercials. Oh, wow. um, and so it was edited. So, but the 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 vampy vamp trio mm-hmm. still. I mean, you can't. There's not much you can do about them. They're over overpowering. It's and so I, good. I remember there's a scene where they they aren't they like conjoined somehow, and like yes, they're, they they're like a like a six or a, a six, yeah like a six arm mm-hmm. three headed like yeah the, the scene core. where. Where Keanu as Jonathan Harker is exploring the castle and ends up being in the the seduction room. Uh, That's where Dracula uh, like Drac shows up and feeds him a baby. Feeds him a baby, and, and it's this horrendous thing. Like it's one of those like sort of mind shattering things if you're a teenager to to kind of <laughs> wrestle with if you've never thought about that kind of horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. Very good. It's cool, man. And and Lucy and Mina, you know, those characters are pretty well represented in the in the movie. It's cool. Like it is it is a fun movie. It is melodramatic as hell in Super Nineties with Keanu and Winona Ryder mm-hmm. and Anthony Hopkins and all that kind of good stuff, but I love it. The old man's Dracula, especially before he turns into sexy young Dracula. When he's old Count Dracula, and mm-hmm. he after he gives them the baby and the laughs and stares that he mm-hmm. gives, those are iconic, man. They're 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 just so good. Yeah. He portrays that that character very very well. It, and then he turns into John Lennon Dracula. John Lennon Dracula, like, that's yeah, yeah. His, his style. Uh huh. Very good. Yep. That's so cool stuff. So those are the the ways that we got into this this subgenre of horror. Let's talk about these three tales of terror tonight. And we can go about it uh, one by one if you guys want, or if if you if you want, we can kind of just have a free for all, all three at the same time. How do you want to approach this? So I guess my vote would be at the start is let's talk about Dracula's guest, I like Bra- that. the Bram Stoker entry because it's the earliest, mm-hmm. and I think it probably informs the other two stories. And so that that just seems right to me because That's I guess me. most of the talking points I have for the horror from the mound is kind of like how it relates to Dracula, Dracula 
<laughs> stories and vampire stories and and that kind of thing. And the same thing with the Clark Ashton Smith story. Good deal. So, so. Dra- Dracula's Guest was written by Bram Stoker and published in 1914 in the book Dracula's Guest and Other Weird Stories. Like posthumously, right? Posthumously, After yeah. This, this is his wife, I think, who has yep. spearheaded this publication. Right. And she did a lot, actually, after his death to keep his name in in the spotlight and to keep his most famous creation, Dracula, mm. um, out there as well. And so there were stage plays and, and that sort of thing of, of that tale. But this, as I understand it, is a an unused draft of a first chapter or an early chapter from Dracula. And if you read this, it doesn't read like any of the novel. Would you guys agree? Yeah, it's weird. So, and I I've, I've read this story in a couple different volumes. Like I have it anthologized in a couple different sources, but whenever we were getting ready for the recording, we were Texted back and forth, and so, uh, Josh, you mentioned that it was in the Klinger, uh, Dracula, mm-hmm. like, that annotated, annotated version, and so I read it there this time around, kind of seeing the, the, the track record, if you will, of, like, Klinger talking about how, is it Harker, is it not Harker throughout the entire narrative, there's a handful of of annotations in the margins of the book that kind of point to the incongruities with how this short story is written versus the way that the Dracula narrative is written. And uh, they're, they're quite different. Yeah, I, w- I would just agree. Like, whoever this protagonist is, it's not Jonathan Harker. Like, it's... it's it, I mean, maybe it, it, it is within Bram, uh, Brahms like <laughs> initial initial writing mm-hmm. but the way that it's presented it's a, it's it's a weird sort of like alternative universe dracula story but this is an awesome story there's a there's a lot of good audio versions of this that are out there in various podcasts and it's super fun it's it's killer uh, it, it is a it is a banger story it just doesn't neatly nest within the dracula you can't read it almost as like the 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 prelude first chapter, right? Mm-hmm. No, and I think it works better as a subsequent read to the novel rather than trying to read the. If you've never read Dracula before, I don't think you should read Dracula's Guest beforehand. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that's a good point for sure. Because Dracula in this is a lurking, like, terror in the shadows, and it helps if you know. You know, Dracula is so ingrained in the public consciousness Uh. that you're bound to know who the character is. But if you don't, then a lot of the power is kind of taken from the story. Yeah, and and knowing, like, seeing that it's telegraphed that far out in this short story, it really would do well. I can see what you're saying to have read the full novel ahead of time to kind of to kind of to to see how it's different, Mm -hmm. like. Because the the Dracula in the Bram Stoker novel is not the Dracula that we necessarily readily appreciate in pop culture, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> you know, and and all of the players within the story of Dracula are like they're not all stuffy shirted uh, Victorian 
gentlemen's, right? Like, there's a whole wide cavalcade of, like, dudes fighting Dracula, ultimately. There's a, a, a handful of different women that are, that are intrigued and entranced and ensorcelled by Dracula. Like, there's more to the story than what ultimately makes its way to pop culture. So knowing what Bram Stoker is presenting, I think, is a cool thing. Because this extra short story is a further variation on it. Like, the fact that it is a... I don't know, this story reads... It's it's a horrific story, but it is a more direct... And our character, our, our protagonist, he's just not as mealy-mouthed as, as Harker is. Mm-hmm. I don't know. what, Like, just the way it plays out. It's, it's cool that it's more... It's There's more of the the culture that gets wrapped up in it. There are some cool folkloric elements that are included in it as well. One of them is this tradition of burying suicides at the crossroads. Yeah. What did you think, John? I read about that in the the Night Creatures book that I talked about before, about how apparently that's a longstanding tradition about putting them there so that when they come back, because apparently they're more likely to come back as a vampire, uh, they'll be confused. They don't know which way to go home. Because they're at a crossroads, so they just stand there, I guess. Yeah, which is why I did not stop for the car. Right. Yeah. Right. Crossroads. Crossroads. <laughs> um, so the other thing that uh, uh, I guess we should talk about here is a quick synopsis of the story. Sure. So how would you synopsize this in a, a, a tweet-length statement, you guys? Walpurgisnacht. Walpurgisnacht. <laughs> yeah. I love this idea of Walpurgisnacht. Yeah. Uh, and it, to me, it represents like it's the last day before spring really takes its power. So it's the last day of darkness's reign within the year. And so all the witches and all the, the uh, specters, Haints and Boogers, go to this one mountain in Germany and they have a powwow, and they decide what mischief they're going to do that night, and then they go and do it. Sounds like a great time, right? It, it sounds like a party. This It's night on Bald Mountain. Right? <laughs> I read a little bit about this on a, a blog or a website, I guess, called A German Girl in America. Okay. Because uh, I was curious about Walpurgisnacht and St. Walpurga. Uh, and yeah, you're talking about the mountain that it's on. Apparently... There's a the Hartz Mountains H A R Z. Have you read about? Did you read about? Okay. No, I don't know much about it. So a, it's a, a, spe- a specific mountain area in a town called Brocken, and yeah, on April 30th, on the highest peak of these mountains, that's where they light the bonfires and perform dances, uh, and it's apparently a big celebration of Saint Walpurga, who came to Germany to perform conversions and help to Christianize the area, you know. Perhaps you have different views on that, depending on your long view of history. But when she died, her tomb began to ooze a healing oil. Mm. And when this happened, she became a saint. And they uh, chopped up parts of her and spread it across Germany and France so the the miracle could go to everyone. <laughs> oh, praise be. Yep. Uh, so no, Nothing weird about that. <laughs> nothing weird about that at all. Uh, so, yeah, it's like this real deal night of keeping the witches away by burning stuff up in the mountains. Mm-hmm. They don't seem to go totally in that direction of the story. I don't remember talking about a big bonfire or anything, but everybody's no, definitely no. afraid. Yeah. And it's definitely yeah. a little cold in the air. Well, it's, it's definitely like it gets that way. Like I love how it becomes a, a winter wonderland in a way, like the way that it, 
it becomes this 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 snowstorm or this blizzard that kicks up, and it just adds to the the secluded sort of feel of the story. Yes. Yeah. And our protagonist is on a wagon journeying, presumably, to Dracula's castle. Right. And he decides at this crossroad that he would like to go check out this dead village. Right? This yeah. village where everyone has been dead for 200 years. And there was a vampire there once. Maybe. According the, to the coach driver. The tweet would be, Englishman ignores local folklore, <laughs> local suffers guy. the consequences. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> I'll tell you where I'm going. Yeah, I'm going to go up <laughs> this way, Johan, and there's nothing you can do about it. Exactly. And he does. He goes up this like haunted path, basically, to a dead village where everybody that they unburied there a long time ago, they were st- when they got them dug up, they were still rosy-cheeked and red-mouthed. And it seemed like maybe there was some evil afoot. Maybe. And so he decides to go into a, a tomb, right? A mausoleum. Yep. And like a marble thing. Yeah. And uh, there is a uh, beautiful lady there. It's true. Yeah. The Countess. The Countess. The Lingen of Graz. Uh there's also a weird structural element to this place. There's like a big iron spike driven through the ceiling. That's true. Yeah. Lots of weird things going on here. And there's an inscription. The, the inscription is something that, that uh, is echoed in the novel Dracula. Right. And is uh, four words that always kind of gives me the, the heebie-jeebies, yeah. the, the goosebumps. In Russian, it is written... The dead travel fast. The dead travel fast. It's, yeah, it's working. <laughs> I saw him coming up. <laughs> and so all of this creepy stuff is is just wonderful set dressing for the vampiric assault that's about to come. So let's talk about this actual vampire stuff that happens in the story. We meet this lady who's obviously a reference to an earlier vampire tale by a different author, right? Camilla. Oh. Who herself was a reference to Lady Bathory, maybe? Elizabeth Bathory? That that bathed in the blood of... That bathed in the blood of virgins, thinking it would keep her young. Turned out... Not so much. No. Yeah. And she was tried as a witch. They'll do it every time. (laughs) But in this tale... Um, our nameless hero meets a, a long lying undead countess and what happens? She doesn't stick around for long. No, she doesn't. She gets lightning. She gets lightning. That's seems like an, in, uh, unexpected end, which is another Gothic thing, right? Like, aren't there a lot of lightning bolts that bring down cursed houses and things like that? It seems accurate. There's a Lovecraft story. Oh, what was it? I can't think of the name of it, where the guy goes into this house and he, uh, shoot, there's a guy upstairs and he's looking at this, this picture and more and more and more of this guy is like talking about how he wants to cut up bodies and just eat them and things like that. And then the house gets struck by a lightning bolt. Do you know the story I'm talking about? I don't know. I can't think of it. I'll have to look it up and post it on the blog. I don't remember. But I I feel like that lightning bolt strike, that cleansing lightning bolt is a trope in Gothic stories, Hmm. right? This is, this is uh, the, 
God's fire cleansing the, the evil from the, the land. Right. When that happens to our vampire lady, who does nothing except for prove that vampires are, right. are in existence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a very strange end for her. It seems like, yeah, nature is trying to reclaim this area or something. There's hailstones, a mini tornado, lots of snow. Yeah. Our protagonist, unnamed as he is, doesn't seem to deal with the supernatural as much as he does the natural world yeah. mm-hmm. for most of the story. Is that now, fair to say? Now, if you've read the novel, Dracula, you know that, that he can control the winds and, and mists and things. Is this Dracula preventing this lesser vampire from harming this person that he has claimed as a victim? Seems like it. Seems like it's possible. Can he become a giant snow wolf, too? I think so. Seems within his uh, milieu. His wheelhouse. It's in his tool belt. Yeah. One of his... It's among his skills. <laughs> yeah, it's spooky. We don't... I, I don't know. Like, it's hard to read this into the narrative of Dracula because... It doesn't make a lot of sense, the way that the protagonist is framed and the mm-hmm. way that, like... Seemingly, Dracula is framed, but regardless, like like that apart, it is this individual coming like into contact with with a vampire. Mm-hmm. Like it, 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 it's 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 not a direct corollary with the novel, but there's there's a lot of spookiness and the 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 the, the final beats with the the wolf breathing on his neck and sort of like lapping at it. It's really horrific. And it's, it's compelling. Again, I, I mentioned this before. I can't remember exactly which was the, the first, uh, audio version of this that I listened to because there are a number of them. Uh, but the first time that I encountered this story, it was like with a, with an audio podcast version of it. Mm-hmm. And, it's a great story. It plays out. It's 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 breezy. You can digest it in a single sitting, and man, it totally like wraps you up. And the the final the final bits really are horrific. Just mm-hmm. the <laughs> the way everything gets white, and then there's this wolf, and uh, this guy could have could have got it. Mm-hmm. And the final thing that happens, the stinger, which I love, is he makes it back to safety. But he gets a letter from Dracula who basically alludes to the events that have happened to him and makes it subtly known that he has laid stake on him. Right. Mm-hmm. Be careful of my guest. His safety is most precious to me. Should aught happen to him or if he should be missed, spare nothing to find him and ensure his safety. He is English and therefore adventurous. There are often dangers from snow and wolves at night. Lose not a moment. If you suspect harm to him, I will answer your zeal with my fortune. Dracula. Uh, 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 uh. In the background, Drac laugh. Fade to black. <laughs> yeah, so Luke, you like the story a lot, it sounds like. I did, yeah. Uh, it is a story, again, like... I didn't. I didn't read this short story until just a few years ago, and I first encountered it as a, as an audio like podcast type story, and I've read it pretty much every year since. I guess probably about three years. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I read Dracula in the, the early mid nineties. So <laughs> there's 
been a wide gulf of time between me knowing Bram Stoker's Dracula novel and Bram Stoker's Dracula's guest, you know, like we're talking about decades. So to me, I'm always framing it up in the context of uh, that novel. But it, it's not, it's not hard for me to just disassociate the two. Like this is an Elseworld story. Like that's that's the easiest way to think about it. Like it doesn't make sense that the protagonist is not acting very Jonathan Harkerish. Mm-hmm. He's just a dude on his way, and hijinks ensue. So I like that it's a, a story of him on the road, and I think that really does play. I think I think it being like almost a story. On a on a on a on a railroad kind of kind of trajectory works. Mm-hmm. How about you, John? I wasn't quite as taken with this one as I was some of the other stuff we read, uh, and that might be because I've never read Dracula. But uh, I guess yeah, I was waiting for the more vampiric elements, and they never quite came. But I did like the elemental aspect, like the getting lost in the snowstorm in a cemetery. And the wolf is horrifying. And the fact that they're all kind of scared of his neck uh-huh. afterwards, that, and it makes you think that maybe something has happened to him. Like the wolf licked him clean through or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is very scary at that part, but not my favorite. I see. Uh, yeah. How about you? Uh, I like it. I don't think that it is as good as the novel. But I think it works great as a companion piece to the novel. And I wasn't thinking about it necessarily as an Elseworlds alternate reality. Something so much as I was thinking of Dracula as this master sort of manipulator. And why wouldn't he invite multiple solicitors to Castle Dracula to buy up land around England or around London? You know, it makes it makes sense to me. But it doesn't, like, I agree with you, Luke. This is not Harker. And I think when we were texting, I, I said, "Is it could it be Renfield? But Renfield being a previous solicitor that worked for the same company as Harker, I think comes from the movie. I don't know that that... I, I did some quick research before I came over, and I don't think that Renfield in the book is associated with Harker in any way. No, I, I don't. I think he's diff- a different guy. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, but... Uh, I love the stinger, the, you know, the snow and wolves can be hazardous to your health. <laughs> yeah. So good. Uh, I love it. And it, it, I think it does only work if you're familiar with the character. It totally makes sense, too. I mean, I, I've not delved deep into Bram Stoker lit crit, mm-hmm. but... It totally makes sense to me why this would be called out. Like, he has this perspective chapter, but Dracula starts the way that it does with Mousy, Harker, mm-hmm. talking about, you know, I had paprika chicken. How excited. Woo, how excited. I'm on the road, I'm on the train, I'm, like, it's, this is a... a spookier start at the outset. Like, 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 this is a story that gets more to the quick fears mm-hmm. than the way that Dracula ultimately plays out in this first few pages. Mm-hmm. I would agree. It sets the mood yeah. for our next gothic tale of vampiric horror. 
A Rendezvous in Averone, published in Weird Tales in the year of our Lord, 1931, in the May-June issue of this exalted magazine. Yeah. And so it and the the Howard tale that we're going to talk about are pretty close. There's only about a year separating them. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's worth considering them in the shadow of Dracula, right? And and the the story that we just talked about. For sure. Um, I think, especially at this early stage, this close to... You know, Dracula was published in the late 1800s. I mean, this is within the 25 to 50 years of the publication of that seminal vampire vampire work. And so I think you have to cover these stories in that context. They're they're definitely within the looming shadow of Dracula. So I think we've just named two Dracula fan movies that we can make in the shadow of Dracula and in the looming shadow of Dracula. Okay. Dracula's shadow looms. Just keep those in mind for when we... Patent pending. Yeah, patent pending. So, Clark Ashton Smith is a much uh, more romantic, much more poetic uh, writer than either Robert E. Howard or um, H.P. Uh, uh, Lovecraft. And not not to insult the artistic integrity of either of those two guys, we love those guys, but um, his language is often more lurid, more flowery. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes, much like Lovecraft's stories, it's tough to access what's happening in the story because of the florid language. What do, you, what do you guys think? I think, yeah, I mean, just think about our protagonists of each story, right? Our Bram Stoker guy is a, is a with it Englishman yeah. who's kind of adventurous. Our Robert E. Howard guy is a hard bit cowboy cowpoke mm-hmm. and then we got a troubadour in he's a story. Yeah. so i think it's very clark ashton smithy yeah yeah um Averone is a like fantastical version of france right and so a lot of these names and places uh as there is you know a, a long record on this podcast i have a hard time pronouncing <laughs> and even indeed reading um and so that throws me with this story. But we have talked about another Averone story that was kind of a vampire story that Smith wrote, right? And that was the end of the story, which we talked about a few years ago. This time, however, the the vampire isn't cre- uh, so much creating this paradise within the mind of, of their victims so much as they are tormenting their victims, so what do you guys think about this this story about a hallucinatory castle within the woods and its um, denizens? The coffins are there, right? They're real. They are real. Uh, I I guess it's an it's an interesting one. I, I guess I'm stuck on the troubadour guy. Okay. Uh, just because his name is Gerard Autumn, basically, mm-hmm. and Gerard being kind of a, a pretty strong masculine name, meaning brave and stuff. Uh, something that you might associate more with a warrior or to go into the D&D type set. Like, he's a fighter, but he's a he's a bard. He's there to be a troubadour. And yeah. so I think that's an interesting character to have be the focal point for this. And he so, needs a wizard, right? Yeah. Yeah, and a thief, maybe. <laughs> um, 
what do you think, Luke? What did, what did you what are your thoughts on the rendezvous in Averone? I think it's great. I think it's a very predictable story. Uh, but I think it's lush. As the story unfolds, we've got this dude that's trying to put together a sonnet but not too concerned with it and he's thinking about his lady and he's moving along and you just kind of want to nestle down into the story uh but then once the once stuff gets weird and sort of the world sort of flips over and you're in the upside down kind of kind of presentation of things it's uh it's still very uh, sensuous. I know we've used that term a lot, but like the the story itself, you just kind of want to like just luxuriate in the the language that Clark Ashton Smith's throwing out at you. And I think it's cool. There's there's not a whole lot of meat on the bone with this story, but it's fun and I I dig it. There's a, a wizard vampire in the Citadel, and this guy's going. <laughs> to, to meet up with his right. to have a rendezvous in Avonrone and uh, get sidetracked, waylaid if you will by the vampire the world flips upside down he ends up having this dinner scene and ultimately he can kill the vampire with Josh's favorite right. trope the vampires don't partake, they, right? don't partake <laughs> I never drink <laughs> and then they have to go to their boy-girl rooms Right. Yeah. Was, wasn't that weird? What, 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 do you, what do you make of that? It's very prim and proper, I guess. Like, trying to I present mean, the... Yeah, it's just, like, it was of a time, right? right. Like, you wouldn't necessarily check up with the opposite sex, so... Yeah. It's, it's just not very to. Clark Ashton Smithy, though. Mm-mm. I mean, it's not what he wants to do. Right. It's what he's got to do. Right. He's got to. That makes the, the rendezvous that they might have otherwise yeah. more, more exciting. I was curious. I've never heard of... Hornbeam being important with vampires is that a thing? I had you... never either, okay. or having any kind of yeah. uh, power over the undead. But um, I I do remember that he carved a cross in it, right, and right. kind of sharpened the end of his stick into into like a spear or a, a big stake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's so. This and we can talk about it with the the Howard story. The things that I think are cool about these stories is how little bits and pieces of seeming uh, Stoker-esque vampirism get kind of hardwired into these stories. Mm-hmm. I think that's cool. The, 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 the carving of the cross. and I mean, the way... It, and it's, it's limited, but the way that we've read the Averone stories thus far, because we've only read the, the, the one before, right? We read the end of the story, and that's yeah. an Averone... And yeah. then I think the other, the the white worm, is maybe a Zothique. I don't, I don't quite yeah. remember. But this is clearly a like the cross means something. There's the Christian sort of grounding here, mm-hmm. and it's weird, but it's also not too 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 weird. So that that's totally alien. I like that we get the the standardized tropes. It seems like this story is abiding by a lot of vampire tropes whereas I think Howard's trying to, to, to buck some trends like, mm-hmm. I mean he's just doing it because it's you know cool Spanish 
Wild West vampires, but it's different, right? Like, this is a bit more standardized, seemingly. Like, that was the thing that I took. Like, so the order that I read these stories was I read uh, Dracula's Guest, this one, and then the Howard story. Okay. Me too. Yeah, me too. Okay. So maybe that flavored things, but it does seem to me that this is closer to the trips of the vampire as defined by Stoker. Which, of course, is not like the, the end-all, be-all of vampires. I'm not making that kind of statement. But in terms of establishing standard vampire tropes, this thing aligns, and it seems like Howard deviates a little bit. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Yeah. I would agree. Um, did you look up Hornbeam just then? Or, I, mean, I did. Okay. I, I didn't see anything. Or so. I saw some people selling vampire steaks that were made of Hornbeam, blessed by a witch. Ah, but uh, I think it was an Etsy store or something for a for a good price. Uh, I didn't check the price. how many how many coins. It, I didn't look. You want me to go back? Yeah, <laughs> I want to know how many hearts I need to spend because you're Castlevania two spile. You're gonna spy. go back by that car or? Well, you never know. I agree. I think this story is more in the the Venn diagram with Stoker because of. Not just the the tropes, the vampire tropes, but the overall gothic style of it. It's just very much aligning. I mean, it's 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 very different because this is so so flowery. Whereas like Stoker's stuff is just that much more accessible. Yeah, right. Like you didn't need a thesaurus to kind of get everything that he was laying out. With a Clark Ashton Smith story, you really do. Yeah, but it's it's it's. That it's of a type with the way that it's presented. For sure. I agree. Best moment in the story? Is there a moment in the story that, that is the analog of um, uh, the big scary wolf licking the dude's neck or, or the the letter, the, the sub-tweet? <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's quite as scary. I think that the just the overall like the, the, the dinner scene is just really well put together and there's there's a feeling of dread it's unsettling yeah 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 I would agree yeah isn't there sort I would say it's like a sleep paralysis sort of bit where they're in the room that's right yeah Yeah. Yeah. that's right yeah that's a good good part yeah Mm -hmm. good some people think hornbeam can live forever Uh, is one attribute of it I just found out so that can cancel out the Undead's ability to live forever. Or maybe like the immortalities, yeah. Yeah. Immortalities cancel out. Yes. <laughs> Across the equal sign. Uh, they are known for luck, healing, wisdom, divination, clairvoyance, and longevity. What kind of horn meme is this? Carpinus Carolinia. That's the one we got here in North America. The, the hot horn meme? Yeah. The wood hardiness is it's 1780. The, uh... No, the the hop horn beam is Australia, Virginia. This oh, okay. Is the, this is the Carolina horn beam, or the the muscle wood, or the ironwood. Ironwood. Okay. Yep. yep. Way to go, Carpinus. <laughs> That's a cool one, man. Let's bring it home with our boy Howard, our patron saint, the the patron of the crown cast. Yeah. Let's do it. Take the lead. Uh, Steer the boat. It's a. <laughs> This is a, a cool story. I read it in The Black Stranger and Other American Tales, and I think that's a key point to bring out. 
for our discussion is that we've talked about two stories in the old world and now we're in the new world mm-hmm. and uh, we're in Texas, which is fertile ground for Howard's story. Mm-hmm. And I, I was taken with this one. I actually read it, I think in maybe almost the exact opposite order of you guys. I read this, then Dracula's guest and then uh, rendezvous. Okay. So not quite the exact opposite, but um, so maybe that colored my perceptions, but I thought this was pretty spooky story. Uh, lots of good jump scare moments and, scariness and a very Howardian tale. I don't know if I found quite the civilization versus barbarism angle that we normally find with him, but I did think we find some uh, sentiment about exploitation of the new world, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What do you think, Josh? I think that there's some interesting sort of statements on the, the vampire tropes. And so in Dracula, the way that Dracula reaches England is on a ship where he has killed everyone, right? And it's just a ghost ship. The I think it's the Demeter. And it gets, it kind of, uh, there, there's somebody at, the, a corpse at the, the wheel, and it just kind of smashes into the port, right? And a big dog jumps off of it, uh, according to eyewitnesses. Wow. And in this one, we have a similar ghost ship with the uh, Spanish count. Is it Santiago? Estrada. Estrada. Yeah, De Estrada. Okay, yeah. Um, and he asks to hop aboard this other ship and comes thusly to the, to the New World and makes his way out to Texas, where he is, according to legend, uh, stuffed in a hole in an ancient mound and left there. Fast forward. <laughs> Steve Brill has bought some land. He's farming it. He's a cowpoke. He's not meant to be a farmer, but he's trying to make his way through it. And he notices that his neighbor, old Lopez, tries to avoid this hill as much as possible. And he kind of questions him about it. And Lopez says, I can't talk about it. But I could write it down. I swore, my, I swore to my grandpa I wouldn't talk about it. And Brill just says, well, could you write it down? Yeah. And, oh, I never, I never oh, said anything about that. This is a good plan, <laughs> so Brill. He, he goes home to write it down, but Brill can't wait. He decides that there's treasure in that there mound. And if we know anything from Howard's stories involving mounds, you do not disturb the mound. Mm-hmm. And he does disturb the mound, and he unleashes a shadow creature onto the hillside. Uh, it makes its way to Lopez and kills him and Brill kind of stumbles upon all of this and then has to contend with the monster in his own home. And it's this Spanish old world Duke vampire that has been locked up for a couple hundred years. Is that Mm -hmm. what he says? Yeah. Yeah. He hungers. Yeah. I think he eats a man, a cow and two horses or does he just let the horses go? I thought he killed all the. Animals. I thought he like, killed all the animals him. and ate them. Yeah, and now it's him versus versus Brill. And luckily for Brill, this vampire's hit points are not full. Right? No, he is quite bedraggled. His appearance is not very count like. No, ratty clothes. He looks like uh, like a corpse. Right? They're rotten off him. I love the descriptions uh, when Brill like grabs his throat and is trying to like keep him off of him. Uh, and, and he's as hard as old brittle wood, like just 
just solid. You can't you can't do anything with it. I misspoke a little bit. It's Don Santiago de Valdez. Valdez, Valdez is the vampire. Yeah. yeah. I could remember Santiago. Right. You were all halfway home. I was halfway home. <laughs> and so we've we've got this it's not really civilization versus barbarism necessarily. I don't know. What do you think, Luke? Is there an element of this tried and true Howard trope? I don't think it's that, but I think there is the tried and true Howard uh, stamp on it. I mean, I think that the story plays into uh, the relationship between civilized versus sort of like ancestral race uh, ideas and ideas of like what's the word from Solomon Cain stories like juju like we're we're dealing with a air quotes primitive race that's more tied to the supernatural versus uh, over and over again Howard uses the term Anglo-Saxon and and their sort of determined fashion to stick to their uh, sort of superior view on things, but clearly, I mean, Howard's playing in the sandbox of uh, they're not quite superior. Like the, the Anglo-Saxons think they know better, but they don't quite know better. And it gets in that civilization versus barbarism thing. Uh, yeah, so, so that's what's going on with it. I think it's cool that, like, Howard treats... Uh, Lopez is that like that's the the initial Mexican fellow that 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 Brill is interacting with mm-hmm. with varied degrees of uh, respect and uh, disdain. Like mm-hmm. it's it's interesting to me to see the racism sort of mixed up with some level of like admiration like that the, I think that this is a, a cool story for that mark because you see uh, how Howard was a complicated dude <laughs> like to, to, to put it like in a pretty simple terms like how he was wrestling with this yeah so I think I think there's a lot of the common Howard stuff I think it's closest in shape to the uh ancestral memory mm-hmm. type stories that we've talked about and I think like the the, the Solomon Kane type uh, stories and I know we'll get to that with the, the vampires here in just a bit but I think that those are the clearest connections to his other stuff mm-hmm. yeah here we have a vampire who is old world royalty who is in the new world trapped in this in this uh, symbol of a um, in a how Howardian terms barbaric group of people, right? Like he would uh, Howard would would certainly file the uh, Native Americans under that barbaric sort of sort of uh, um, category, and not in a disdainful or dismissive way, right. right? And I think there's something to be said for this old money, old royalty subsisting off of other people, right? Off of their backs, taking their money, taking their life, taking their blood, literally. Um, that 
he would have been, you know, that he, he chose that on purpose. And maybe it's just because it's a remnant from uh, Dracula being old money. Right. But it does certainly seem to fit neatly within the, the Howard tableau. Yeah, I guess like the flow and ebb of who's king of the hill at a certain time, right? The the natives are, and then the Spanish come, and they take over. But now look at Lopez, and his people have been brought low, and he's been brought low. And old Steve Brill and his Anglo-Saxon pride, uh, the cowboys are coming through and taming this land, and yada yada, even though it's had all these people before it. Mm-hmm. And Destrada, not Estrada, what do we call it? Santiago is this reminder of you're never really in charge. Like there's, there's other things in this world that can take you all out basically. Yeah. You can never stay on top. Yeah. Like the hunger is what really wins in the end. Mm -hmm. The, the exploitation of things around you. Yeah. Cool. I like that. I wonder if it's a stand in also for like oil tycoons coming in. (laughs) Kind of seems like it. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, because the, the Steve Brill types, they're not long for Texas either. Right. They run out of their clock. The cowboy era was pretty short yep. in the grand scheme of history, right? Yeah. What do you think of the fight? It's pretty brutal. Uh, I think that the only way I would have been more satisfied is if Brill had become the vampire to like kind of close the loop on all these successive quote-unquote races that are taking over. They must have this in them somehow, like you, you got to have one of them become the vampire. Okay. Uh, but I do like the fact that he shatters his spine. Uh, he, he breaks a vampire in half. That's pretty metal. Mm-hmm. And Luke, you were saying a little bit ago, something about how this is connected to an Icelandic saga. Yeah. So, uh, let me pull it up here. So with, uh, reading this story, I messaged Bobby Derry, uh, about the the sort of the relationship between Howard and Stoker. I was just curious. I mean, like like uh, Dracula came out years, like decades before this, right? Mm-hmm. And so my question to him was, did Howard read Dracula? And so he responded very quickly because. Bobby is a monster of the the pulp <laughs> the pulp world. I mean, mm-hmm. the dude just knows so much. So, props to him for 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 all of the help. And so he pointed me towards uh, a couple of different things. I guess I guess the first thing is to say that it's uncertain whether Howard read Dracula. But there's at least some statements in his letters that he went and watched the movie uh, Dracula, like the Bela Lugosi nice. version, right? So, so that that seems to happen. And then, sort of to answer your question, John, there is a book, and and Bobby put us onto this called Undead in the West Two. They just keep coming, and it's edited by Miller and Van Ripper. Or Riper, I'm not for sure. I like Ripper better, but it's probably Van Fit, Riper. It's the moment. Uh, <laughs> from the Scarecrow Press Incorporated. This is a book that came out in 2013, and it's basically a sister 
to a previous edition that looked at Weird West kind of within cinema and whatnot. And this volume looks at Weird West within the, the, the written word. And so chapter one is called Vaqueros and Vampires in the Pulps, Robert E. Howard and the Dawn of the Undead West by Jeff Shanks and Mark Finn. And so the first chapter within this book kind of talks about how Howard lays out the Weird West as a, as a story form. And the first example of that is the horror uh, from the mound, right? So this is kind of the first archetypal Weird West story that, 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 that Howard lays out. And so it's notable, and, and, and Shanks and Finn draw the connections that that Howard probably was taking some sort of nods from uh, Stoker's Demeter trip, like Josh mentioned that earlier. That we've got like the like Dracula on the the ship crossing across the Atlantic. It seems like there's a parallel with that kind of story playing out uh, here with what Howard had going on. But the other thing that's worth mentioning is that like the the ultimate sort of like a horrible violent way that that Howard's cowboy protagonist deals with a vampire he snaps his breath snaps his back the, the take home is that uh it seems like Brill and the the Kraken of the vampire's back ties to kind of like the the Icelandic saga of Gretar the Strong, so I'm quoting here directly from from Shanks and Finn, uh, but they say Howard had mentioned in his letter to Lovecraft in the ninth in the in, rather in the thirteenth century tale, the hero Gretar defeats an undead creature by wrestling it to the ground and breaking its back, and it cuts its head off and burns the corpse. So like Gretter, the Western hero uses brute force rather than cleverness or arcane knowledge to overcome his foe. Brill is no Van Helsing. So, so the cool thing to me about this story is that we have Howard effing around with like what it means to be a vampire. He's playing with those tropes. He clearly is being inspired by uh, Bram Stoker's boat trip story and that gets hardwired into the story and then also I think that the letter writing thing that plays out that Lopez does is a cool thing to talk about too yeah uh, and I think it's very Lovecraftian and that's not something that I've necessarily encountered uh, people talking about otherwise like within this within that uh, that, that, that that shakes and thin that chapter but it seems to me an equal cool story mechanism yeah, and that calls back to the novel, at least Dracula, because it's all told in epistolary form, right? Like it's it's all letters and recordings and things like that. So yeah, and I think it's cool. So within this story, we have kind of the big reveal of the monster. Like it's a very Lovecraftian reveal of the monster, the way that that. Uh, that one sort of writes it out. Like, what we're seeing in The Horror in the Mound, it's it's the, uh, it's the instance of the Lovecraftian protagonist 
writing the final notes of the page and, ah, mm-hmm. and then I die. Only he is an extra character within the story, and you see the use of that story writing mechanism as a motivation for the the protagonist. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think that's cool. Like it's it's and so of course like Call of Cthulhu came out in the twenties. This story came out afterwards. Of course, Howard had read it, just given their relationship, the relationship between Howard and Lovecraft. Like, this was a thing that was established. Howard knew that you could use this Lovecraftian letter-writing epistolary style for relaying story. I think this story, The Horror for the Mount, is cool because it uses that... Uh, letter writing as a way to like sort of move the plot along and it's not just a final plot device to end the story. Does it, that make sense? It's a bridge and it's it builds the tension. Yeah, as opposed to being like the, the cop out. Mm-hmm. Like this is not the climax. This is the uh, the rising tension. It's like a and it's a writing mechanism, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's a it's a plot device to have your character like it's a way to do an information dump mm-hmm. in a in a clever fashion. And it circumvents Juan's promise to his grandfather, right? He didn't break that vow. Got to hand it to him. <laughs> In the end, got eaten by a vampire. A little bit. <laughs> but um, he kept his promise to his grandfather. That's what's important. Yep. Thoughts about this story? Very Howardian. Yeah. Liked it quite a bit. It's good to have a little taste of that this year. I know we've kind of missed him with our our ongoing season of the hard boiled rope, but yeah, good to have some Howard every now and then for sure. Yeah, best moment from this story: spine shatter. Spine shatter. <laughs> <laughs> when when he gets all bane, he yeah, bangs I mean, out. Yeah, real bane. The, the whole fight scene is pretty tense. I mean, just the the clawing, the scratching, the rolling R- around, starting tan, a fire. Yeah, very again, very Howardian, blood mm-hmm. and thunder kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't see that in the other two. It's true. My favorite bit is when Brill real realizes, oh, I accidentally dug up a monster. <laughs> that like, is pretty good. That's well. pretty chilling, right? Yeah. Um, he reads, let's see, no, what's the order of events? Yeah, he reads the letter, right? Then he goes back. No, no he goes back he, first. He and locks sees, himself inside, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, um, And then sees it in his window. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Luke? Best moment? So, I don't necessarily have an exact best moment, but I liked a lot of the language in the story. Like, at one point, like, he, the, like Howard writes that Brill gripped his pick like a battle axe or something, mm-hmm. which was very, of course, sword and sorcery, and I dug that. I also, I mean, I was just clued into kind of the way that Brill was interacting with 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 Juan in the story. And I think it's funny. Like, I like this story a lot, and I totally agree with the overall presentation of things. But I wonder, like, this story could have been substantially shorter if Brill would have discovered the letter in the mound... I mean, he found the letter that, that, that Juan had had wrote, 
actually, I shouldn't say in the mound. So he goes to the mound, and then he goes to Juan's uh, house, and he's there. He finds the letter, he reads it, and he realizes that he's let this horror out on the landscape because of his own greed. I feel like the story could end right there. Like, without mm. without the, the, the overall sort of uh, fulfillment of, like, he's going to kill the monster, like, the monster is out as a consequence of his greed. I think that that would have been, like, as I was reading the story... And as it or listening to it, and then and then I saw, oh, we're gonna go past that. He's gonna actually conquer this monster. In my mind, I'm thinking, dude, you were Brill was a greedy individual. Like he he delved too deeply, even when he was told that he wasn't supposed to, because he thought he knew better than the the person that he was talking to. That was you know more closely tied to the land, right? So sort of tying back to that, there's this line later in the story uh, when Brill is kind of putting it all together and he says, Howard writes, Brill rose, his heart pounding wildly, his face bloodless, his tongue cleaving to his palate, he gagged and found words. That's why the spur was in the mound. One of the Spaniards dropped it while I was digging, and I might have known it had been dug into before, the way the charcoal was scattered out, but good God. Aghast, he shrank from the black visions, an undead monster stirring in the gloom of his tomb, thrusting from within to push aside the stone, loosened by the pick of ignorance. A shadowy shape, loping over the hill toward the light that betokened a human prey. When he used this term, pick of ignorance, it really kind of set me off. Because it wasn't a pick of ignorance. Like, Brill was using a pick of greed. Like, he knew what he wasn't supposed to do, and he did it anyway, because he thought he knew better than Juan. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that it's an interesting... I guess all of this is to say, my favorite lines from this story were sort of picking up on the the classic Howardian SNS stuff, but also sort of reading into the ways that I guess I might have considered writing the story as opposed to Howard. I don't think it was a pick of ignorance that Brill was using. I think it was a prick of, like, a, 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 a pick of arrogance. <laughs> or a pick of greed that he was using to open up this crypt. Because he was, a, he was an idiot. Like, he shouldn't have done it. He was told throughout the entire first third of the story, don't go away to that mound. And the dude said, eh, I'm going to do it anyway. And we got, like, a classic horror story. So in a lot of ways, this really does conform to, like, classic horror story structure because it's a dum-dum going into a place that they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, I think it's cool to see Howard as the SNS writer and Howard as the, the Western writer sort of in a horror story. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Like, that's kind of meandering. But those are the things... Like, there wasn't any one specific scene that stood out. It was, like, two or three different lines. I'm like, I'm going to put a pin in that. Because that really stands out to me as, like, a core thing that's that's, that's neat about the story. Mm-hmm. I like the... I mean, I see, I see what you're saying, and I like where you're going with it. And I really like the idea of this ending with that line. Like, you know, I, I'm visualizing 
the the monster loping over the hills and preying on humanity and what have I done? Mm-hmm. And I I see the the pick of ignorance as like this is internal monologue. Like he's justifying it to himself. Right. Like, like I I was oh if I only I had known. But he did know that something was bad in the mound, bad enough for his friend Juan to say, I can't, I, I, I can't utter it. I have to write it down. He had not yet read what Juan wrote, but if he had read what Juan wrote and then went to dig. Or he, he would have just like heeded what the dude told him. Right. But I, I guess my point is if he had read the thing and then gone to do it anyway, uh, he could no longer justify this ignorance, right? Like he, mm. would, it, it would have to be, I did this because I'm greedy. But I think he does it because he's greedy anyway. He does, but uh, he, he like he has the conversation with Juan, and it's like everything for naught. Like he's not disrespective of Juan, but ultimately his own hubris sort of comes into play, and he's like, "Eh, I'm gonna go dig anyway." Mm-hmm. I get the feeling, oh. What if he really does know, and he just doesn't want to tell me? Like, it's, it, there's those kinds of statements. That's that true. Yeah, that it's he is, uh, that he knows more, and there's this like I don't know. There must be of, gold in there. Or something. Yeah, right. Like some sort of civilizational, like uh, like racial. The, the, I like this. It is super American because of all of the racial components to it. <laughs> Just the way that Howard writes about it, it is a very American story. That's why I wanted him to be a vampire by the end, was that he gets cursed for his hunger with the damnation of hunger. That's a good ending, too. So we we liked it, right? I I do. I love this story. Um, I love all three of these stories for different reasons, and I I think I would rate them uh, Horror from the Mound, Dracula's Guest, and then Rendezvous, but all of them are, are... or great reads. All right. Well, are we going to bring a close to Cromptober? I suppose we should. No, uh, no witches to waylay us this year. Only vampires at the crossroads. Perhaps she's Dracula's guest. Perhaps she is Dracula's guest. And perhaps we'll be joining her for dinner. Ah. <laughs> what? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we hope everyone has a spooky and awesome fall and Halloween. And uh, if you want to listen to more of our Cromtober hijinks, you can direct your browser to thecromcast.blogspot.com. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We are the Cromcast. Always have been. Always will be. And uh, you can email us, thecromcast at gmail.com, or call us, 859-429-CROM. Happy Halloween. Let, yep. the, let the right one in. With that... Stay spooky, have fun. Avoid trunk retreats. Bye! (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I forgot about that rant last year.